Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 57 to 62. Three people considering discipleship. And Jesus responds to each of them in a different manner. So, let's call it the fox, the funeral, and the furrow. The fox, the funeral, and the furrow. As they were going along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have roosts, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go first and to bury my father. But he said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and take leave of those at my home. And Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is of any use in the kingdom of God. Interesting, isn't it? Counting the cost. This could be a follow-up to the story of Elijah calling Elisha, because we did that series about going on on six Sunday nights. Because when Elijah called Elisha, what was he doing? He was plowing a field, and what did he have to do with his parents? He had to say goodbye and he made a break even with his parents. So maybe Jesus has got the story of Elijah and Elisha in mind when he gives this. But in my heart, I'm trying to be sensitive to what I believe the Holy Spirit has been saying to us as a church and as a fellowship. And how many know the future is really bright? Amen? The future is good. I can hardly wait for the future to get here. Because it's just, God is just showing signs of growth and promise and improvement. And it's just a a general sense of really good stuff. I have in my heart that God's really embarking on something great and something good and wonderful. But we have to prepare for our future. Amen? We have to prepare for what is coming our direction, what is coming. And as God will give growth, and as God will bless, and God will multiply, it will probably change the flavor of a lot of things as we know it. It probably will uh, require new commitments from us, new dedication, new way of looking at things. This particular story from the Gospel of Luke, if you would back up to verse 51 of this same chapter, that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And so when it says, as they were going along the road, from chapter 9, 51, to the end of the chapter, Jesus is on a mission. 
And that mission is to arrive in Jerusalem. So it takes them a long journey to get there and a variety of detours and a variety of lessons along the way. But the goal is to arrive in Jerusalem. And how many can tell me what's going to happen to Jesus once he arrives in Jerusalem? What are they going to do to him? It's, it's a crucifixion story. He's, he's bound, but it says in verse 51, it says... And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He makes a very conscious decision that no matter how many lepers he's going to meet along the way, no matter how many needs he's going to meet and encounter along the way, no matter how many sick people he's going to encounter along the way, no matter how many poor people need to be fed that he will encounter along the way, because he's going to encounter all of that on his road to Jerusalem. But the goal is not feeding the multitudes, It's not healing the sick. He steadfastly has this resolute decision to go to Jerusalem. And he does a lot of things along the way. And they're powerful lessons. But it never becomes the main lesson. The main lesson is I'm going to Jerusalem. Where you and I know what will happen to Jesus at Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be spat upon. It's a difficult thing for sure. But you know, people aren't aware of the goal of the Lord. And so they said, I want to join you. Not necessarily knowing what they're joining or what the end of the story for them or for the Master is going to be. But I just want you to notice that there's three stories that the story one and story number three are actually extremely similar. And the story in the middle, story number two, has a variety of differences between the other two stories. This is a very common way of teaching in the Jewish world. It's called a chiastic pattern if you want to get scholarly about it. And it just means you start from the outside with stories that kind of say the same thing, but the middle is the truth of what Jesus is trying to preach. Now just see the thing there. Notice what the same in all the three stories. I will follow you, the first story. Last story, I will follow you. In the middle story, Jesus says, follow me. They all have the word go. I will follow you wherever you go. The last story, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go. But in the middle, Jesus says, follow me. But he says, well, first let me go and bury my father. Now, what's interesting here is that the first and the third stories are people who volunteer to follow Jesus. But in the middle story, Jesus is recruiting somebody. Catch that significance. The first and the third are volunteering, but the the story in the middle is recruiting. It's also interesting how Jesus responds to them, because he will give a response to the first story using a parable from outdoors. And he will give a response in the third story also using a parable from outdoors, 
but in the middle is different and he's going to use a picture from village society. What's interesting in story one and story three is that there's one statement from each party but in the middle story it's a dialogue of three statements. Again, it is different. And also notice this here. You have the dialogue of follow in the first and third and then they respond with go and then they have to consider the cost of what it means to follow. They're volunteering for something but Jesus is asking, have you actually considered what you're volunteering for? Have you actually considered what you are volunteering for? And then in the middle, we just have the same thing. We've got follow, but let me first go, and then there's a cost. And then he just says the same thing backwards. You follow, go, and you cost in reverse. So in other words, it's highly structured. It's, it's a sto- way of storytelling uh, for sure. So there is a, a skeleton, if you're into that kind of stuff, how these stories all come together. All right. Also, if you keep working through this whole thing, you notice in the middle story and in the last story, we have about, it's all about the kingdom of God. You want to go in the kingdom of God. But in the second story and the third story, they have an issue um, the word first. Let me first go. Or let me first go and take leave of those at home. And you notice in both of them, the issue is home life. I've got to bury my father. I've got to ask those in my home. So there's patterns that are definitely here in this story. The first person, we're going to look at it, is a person who's willing to follow. He's attracted, but he hasn't considered the cost of what's involved in going. The second person has been asked by Jesus to follow, but he has considered the cost. The first person hasn't, but the second has considered the cost, and uh, he wants to go home. But Jesus says, no, you are to go and proclaim the kingdom. And the cost of being a disciple is in the form of a command. By contrast, the third person, he also is offering to follow unconditionally, but neither has he understanding the cost. And like the second person, the third story, is uh, he wants to do something and go home first before he can actually obey the Lord. It's interesting. What does it mean to be a disciple of the one whose face is set to go to Jerusalem? What is involved if you're going to give yourself to the work of the kingdom of heaven? In other words, what does it take, what does it mean to be useful in the kingdom of heaven? Two people volunteer, one gets recruited. Why do people want to follow the Lord? I think they're attracted to Jesus perhaps because of the miracles. Perhaps because of the compassion that he is showing to people. After all, his word was with power. 
After all, as you read through the Gospel of Luke, he did cast out demons, he did heal the sick, he did cleanse lepers, a man with a withered hand is is healed, a widow at Nain gets her son raised from the dead, he walks on the sea, a woman with the issue of blood is healed, he multiplies food in the wilderness and raises the daughter of Jairus. Things are happening. Who wouldn't want to join Things are happening. The kingdom of God is breaking out in power and Jesus is getting really, really famous. And because of the presence of the miraculous and the presence of of the gifts of the Spirit and the presence of the things of the Lord, people want to jump on board. And they say, yes, count me in. Maybe they're attracted to a power that they see associated with Jesus. So the first person in this stanza is not recruited, but he just volunteers himself. But as we can see, his decision is somewhat impulsive. He's enthusiastic, but he's not thinking. And he doesn't have the discernment of what it actually means to get on board with Jesus. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to suffer some really difficult things. And this first person doesn't understand that to follow Jesus means to embrace Gethsemane, it means to embrace Golgotha, and it means to embrace the grave. It has not entered into his consciousness that the Son of Man is going to suffer and that he's going to be rejected. That's so opposite of what's in the heart of people who look for dominion or glory and power. And back in chapter 9, Jesus has just finished teaching that. If you go back to verse 22 of chapter 9, it says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, be slain and be raised the third day. And then he would make this in verse 23, And if anybody wants to follow me, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. But if anybody wants to follow me, he says you've got to deny yourself, take up the cross daily, and follow me. A lot of people want to follow, but he wants people to consider the cost of what it means to follow the Lord. So the volunteer has not been given details, but he gives what Jesus does give him is a graphic picture of complete rejection. That the worker of Jesus will suffer deprivation, but whatever the motives, he or she, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're following a rejected leader. Because if you just go back to chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, The first thing it says that after Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, the first experience he had was rejection. He went to the Samaritans and they wouldn't receive him. James and John want to call fire down. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you have. But the first thing that he experiences when he makes a decision to steadfastly go towards Jerusalem, his first experience is to be rejected. Anybody have that experience? You decided to give all to God. Make your life count. And people are just not happy with your decision. Rejection. The first thing that Jesus experienced upon making that decision. Now, the animals, the birds, they have homes. But the Son of Man has nowhere 
to lay his head. So Jesus is not going to let things like possessions and the cares of this life hinder his own growth and his own obedience uh, to the Lord. So in spite of all the expectations that people have about Jesus, the fact is he does stand powerless in a sense towards the cross. He's going to embrace the cross. He is alone and Jesus is asking the question, will you join me in being rejected? Deep question, isn't it? Will you join me in being rejected? Do you seriously want to follow a rejected son of man? The implication is very clear. The implication is this. Ministry, being called of God, involves suffering, it involves rejection, it involves opposition, and it involves resistance. And nobody loves to embrace that kind of stuff. But if you're going to go with the kingdom of heaven, you must be prepared to expect such a response. Did you catch that? If you're going to go with the Spirit of God, if you're going to embrace the kingdom of heaven, you must be prepared with the fact that not everybody will be your friend and not everybody will approve and you will experience a sense of alienation and rejection. That's what Jesus is teaching here. You see, before the resurrection, there has to be a death. Before Joseph in the book of Genesis tasted the glory of Egypt, he suffered the rejection of his brothers. We all want to embrace the glory of his resurrection. But Jesus is making plain to us that we first embrace the fellowship of his sufferings. Do we understand... As in all the parables of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, in this first one, we don't know the outcome. Did this man consider the cost? Did he understand what's required of him to follow Jesus? We don't know. And the way Luke writes his Gospel is he never finishes the story. Because basically he wants me and you to finish the story with our own response. In every age there are people who just glibly choose to follow Jesus without any consideration of the cost in identifying with a suffering and a rejected leader. To identify ourselves with Jesus or to be people who say we're going to embrace the fullness of the Holy Spirit, we have to be prepared that we're going to get on the outside of the boundaries of what some people think is acceptable. Did you catch that? To follow the passion of the Holy Spirit is to put yourself on the outside of boundaries of what other people consider what is acceptable. The way you're looking at me, I almost think I should say it again. <laughs> to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit is to put yourself outside the boundaries of what other people will think is acceptable. 
And therefore, to follow the will of God puts you in a state of rejection from other people. Are you sure you want to jump on board? Consider the cost. Now let's go to the third story because the first and the third story are quite the same. The third story is another person who volunteers. I want to get into this thing. Put me on the ground level of this thing. I want to volunteer and I'm offering my services. Please understand to follow the Lord's will to embrace the kingdom of heaven is going to require a reorganization of your life. Smile at me or something. (laughs) A reorganization of your life. To follow the Lord means you have to reorient your value system. Because you're going to discover very quickly that the world's value systems and the kingdom of heaven's value systems are very much in conflict. Very, very much in conflict. This third person, I will follow you, Lord. He brashly offers to follow Jesus. But like the second person who we haven't looked at yet, he has a precondition. Is it a legitimate excuse? Is it an excuse? What does it mean, let me first go and take leave of those in my home? What does that mean? It means before you answer Jesus, you have to go and ask permission from your family to do so. Listen carefully to this. You have to ask permission to do so. The point is that the volunteer is asking for the right to go home and obtain permission from those at home, especially one's parents. Now, if you lived in that culture at the time, everybody would know this, that there is no parent in the world that would ever give any son or daughter permission to follow Jesus who has no home. It is questionable. And there is no family member that would ever give you permission to follow Jesus. Everyone would know that this guy was asking permission to submit the question of following Jesus to his parents' authority. What he is saying is this, that the authority of my parents is greater than your authority. The opinion of my mother and my father, the opinion of my family, is more important, Lord, than your opinion. That's what's being said here. Now you have to understand in this Middle Eastern culture in which Jesus told the story that the authority of the father is supreme no matter how old the son is. I could be a 50-year-old son and if my father said no, it doesn't matter that I'm 50. My dad said no. And the will of the father is supreme over your life no matter how old you are. So it is shocking that a man of the age of Jesus who's in his early 30s would claim to have more authority over your parents. The only alternatives that Jesus gives you is acceptance and compliance or rejection and hostility. You have to make a choice. 
It's actually startling. Now this is important because Jesus knows something about working in the kingdom of heaven that a lot of us haven't really clued in yet. And that is, you must have completely undivided loyalty. Completely undivided loyalty. No distractions allowed whatsoever. Otherwise, no real lasting effort can come out of our lives without such loyalty. There's a strong word about discipleship. To understand the need for such complete devotion to Jesus is now given in this parable about a man putting his hand to the plow and looking back. Jesus is using a picture very common in his day, obviously. What is it like? What does it mean when Jesus says you've got to put your hand to the plow? Well, one thing is the plow is basically a light implement. It's not really heavy. It is light. And you have to have one hand on the plow. And with that one hand only, you have to guide it, turn it with your wrist, how deep it goes is by the pressure you put down or you lift it up with that one hand. It's totally under the authority of that one hand. You have to keep the plow upright. You have to regulate its depth by the pressure. You have to learn to lift it over rocks, lift it over stones in its path. And you've got one hand on the plow. In the other hand, you have what's called uh, a goad. It's about two meters long. It has an iron spike at the end of it. And you are prodding the oxen with it to move forward. So both hands are busy. One on the plow, one with this ox goad. And all this time you've got two oxen and you're looking between their hind quarters and yet you're, you're focused on something there in the future. And what you've got to do is you just got to keep plowing and poking and have those ox goes keep pulling that plow and you've got to keep doing, changing the depth and the pressure and guiding it so it's going straight all the time. In other words, it, you, it requires dexterity and it requires complete concentration. If you look around, if you are distracted, you will destroy the ability to have a harvest. If you get distracted and you don't plow the thing right, you're ruining the potential of the harvest in front of you. Whoever wants to follow Jesus... He's saying you have to be resolved to break every link with the past and to break all ties upon your heart and fix your eyes only on the coming of the kingdom of heaven. The task of plowing is an exacting task. You have to be careful and you have to be thorough. Actually, to get the harvest, did you know you're going to have to plow the ground four times? After a harvest is finished... And the ground lays fallow for a while, it gets hard. And there has to be a plowing of the ground just to break it up, to break up the hardness and the foulness of it. And the first plowing that takes place is you have these broad bands there and you, you plow it in such a way so that when the rain comes, the ground absorbs the rain 
rather than just runs off hard ground. You have to prepare the ground to receive the rain. That's the first plowing that has to be done. And if you don't get that right, if you don't plow it right, if you've been distracted and you don't have the straight lines, and if you didn't put the right pressure down at the right time, when the rain comes, it'll simply run off and the ground won't be prepared to receive any seed. You can't be distracted. It's exacting work. And then when the rains first come, then you have to plow the whole ground again, this time making more narrow lines, and you have to make the proper drainage so that everything gets watered properly. And then just before you're going to sow the seed, you have to plow the ground yet a third time so that you've got the nice rows that they're going in, the right depth, and the seed will go into the right places. If you don't plow it right, the seed doesn't get sown right. And then you have to plow it a fourth time, which is to plow it so that the seeds get covered, or else the fowls of the air will come and eat your crop. So you've got to plow this ground four times. The seed is the Word of God. Our hearts have to be prepared. A church has to be prepared. A nation has to be prepared to receive the seed. The rain is the Holy Spirit and we need the watering of the presence of God continuously and we need this combination of the water and the seed or the Spirit and the Word. But the fact is this, if we don't plow properly, listen, if we don't plow properly what will happen to a harvest if we can't keep the rain if it just runs off what happens if we don't plow properly and the seed isn't properly buried in your heart it just gets lost so this business of the kingdom of heaven the ministry of the word and the ministry of the spirit is actually quite serious stuff and if we get it wrong If we get it wrong, then the effects are just lost. I don't want the effects to be lost. Amen? I want the fullness of the Spirit, and I don't want the rain to run off. I want to soak my heart. Amen? And I don't want the seed just to be on the surface where the birds will take it. I want the seed, the Word of God, to get deep, deep root in my heart. The work of the kingdom of heaven is like that. Now what Jesus is saying, since the work of the kingdom of heaven is so exacting, you must not allow anything in your life to compete with the concentration required in the work of plowing. Don't let anything compete with the concentration that is required. And Jesus is saying every disciple has to choose between loyalty to him as the one who inaugurates the kingdom with all of its consuming demands and he's letting you know up front it will come into conflict with your family. It will come into conflict with your own family. To follow Jesus means these loyalties come into conflict with one another. You see, Jesus is going to make the statement right at the very end that if you cannot resolve the conflict, he says, of no use 
in the kingdom of heaven. If anyone looks back in the work of the kingdom, the plow could catch on a rock, the rock could break the plow, you can tire the oxen unnecessarily who are pulling rocks instead of just breaking the ground. Uh, The plow can just cut back into other rows and just destroy the work and the drainage and it's all destroyed or whatever. We could veer off making the plowing crooked and difficult. We could ruin the drainage system. We can damage the water absorption. Or we could leave the newly planted seeds exposed for the birds to feed on. In other words, plowing is hard work. And it requires absolute concentration. Nothing can compete with the concentration that is required. The plowman has to work in harmony with what's already been plowed in the past. He has to be in teamwork with his oxen he's working with right there. And he has to look forward at the goal to keep everything in a straight line. He has to be in harmony with each aspect. If he is divided, if he is distracted by a divided loyalty, Jesus said he'll be unproductive and actually destructive to the work of God. Pretty hard stuff, isn't it? Very hard demand of what's being asked here. In the third story, like the first story, we don't know how he responds. Why? Because we have to make the response. How do you and I respond to this? Let's go to the, the middle story. This time it's not a volunteer. This time Jesus specifically has asked somebody to follow him. Follow me. In the Gospel of Luke, that word follow means be my disciple. It means let me be your teacher, you be my student, let me be the father, you be my son. It means let's have a lifelong relationship of father and son. I want you to follow me in my work. Now, the fact is, though, the sky in the middle, the second story, has considered the cost. He's realizing something in the first story and the third story that they haven't realized, that there is a cost. To say yes to the Lordship of Jesus means a surrender of all your natural life as you know it has to come under that authority. You can't be loyal to your natural life and loyal to the kingdom of heaven at the same time. They come into conflict with each other. And the guy in the middle knows that. He's aware of the cost. So he says, let me first go and bury my father. Now how many would say upon reading that's a reasonable request? How many say that's reasonable? Uh, Excuse me, they're on the road. They're traveling somewhere. Excuse me, the father's not even dead. He's not even dead. What he is saying is, when all my earthly obligations are finished and looked after, then I can follow you. It could be decades before his father dies. Oh, you know, just I have to get all of these affairs, and you know, 
in my life all organized first and I got pensions to look after and I got this to look after and I got that to look after and when I get it all organized and sealed and set then I can follow you let me first go bury my father the trouble is he's not even dead you follow what I'm saying here? He's not even dead. But he's saying, only after I have fulfilled all my earthly obligations will I be free to follow Jesus in the work of my kingdom. To bury one's father is an idiom that specifically refers to the duty of a son. He's to remain at home and care for his parents until they are respectfully laid to rest. I have to look after my family's needs first. Well, for us who live in the Western culture, it's called peer pressure. We have to understand to follow Jesus precisely requires that we will have to violate the expected norms of community. It puts us at odds with the expected norms of community. So he says to the person who has concern about you've got to get all your earthly obligations sorted first before you can follow me, he said, you're dead. Let the dead. If that is the concern of the heart, Jesus saying, we are spiritually dead. Let the dead bury the dead. It's the spiritually dead who must take care of traditional responsibilities and put off the business of the kingdom of heaven. The Greek language is emphatic. It says, you go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Quite a strong story Jesus is teaching, isn't it? About discipleship and what it means to embrace his will and his ways. If you look at all three stories in the order that they are, A, B, and then A, 1 there, the first story will teach us this about discipleship. It's not about triumphalism. It's not about, you know, victory, victory, victory all the time, and all those signs and wonders and miracles. There's the other side of the equation. And the other side of the equation is suffering. And to be useful in the kingdom of heaven is to accept the fact that not everybody's going to love you for doing it. It's going to violate your traditional responsibilities. And Jesus is going to ask that you submit those things to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, fruitfulness comes only after you've been pruned. Fruitfulness comes after you've been pruned. To be useful in the kingdom requires such a decision. Some people are attracted to the company of the faithful and the miraculous. But the first story was to ask us the question, do we seriously consider the cost of embracing the future? That ministry is accomplished in rejection and humiliation. Not everybody is your friend. Would-be disciples are not accepted until they have consciously decided to to pay the price of a rejected leader. We have to come to grips with that. The second story, we learn this, that loyalty to Jesus, loyalty to the kingdom is more important than the traditional cultural roles you're accustomed to playing. 
It's more important. We discover that Jesus does reach out to call people to the work of his kingdom, that Jesus will accept no authority higher than his own, and Jesus expects you to bow the cultural and traditional demands of the community to his lordship, and they are not acceptable excuses for him to fail in discipleship, no matter how long-standing those traditions are. He won't accept it as an excuse. The demands of family are no reason to be excused. That's what he's teaching. To follow Jesus means to participate in the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Jesus is that unique agent to whom we are to obey if we're going to express the life of the kingdom of God. And the third story tells us this about the whole discipleship thing. The authority of Jesus is absolute even if it conflicts with family needs. That it is a distraction to be avoided if anybody is going to be of use to Jesus and the kingdom, as how he says it. Service in the kingdom of God, therefore, is synonymous with following Jesus. The call of the kingdom has to take precedence over every other loyalty in our life. A disciple with a divided loyalty is a disruptive force, and therefore Jesus considers unfit for service in the kingdom of heaven. And following Jesus is hard work. It's strenuous, creative, and all-consuming task, like putting your hand to the plow and joining with a team of oxen. And so Jesus says to people who want to join, there you go. Have you considered the cost? Have you considered what is required? Have you considered the concentration necessary? Have you considered the loyalty expected? It's an honor to be called of the Lord. Amen? It's an honor and it's a privilege. But we must understand the call cuts really deep into the human heart. Really cuts really, really deep into the human heart. Because yet it sounds difficult, but I tell you what, after crucifixion, there is a resurrection. The fellowship of the sufferings pales to the glory of His presence. God is doing a good thing. And I'm just responding to what I believe the Holy Spirit has been saying, and we've been hearing it even prophetically in our services. I think I heard a word a couple of weeks ago. It's time to put your hand to the plow. I'd heard that word. That's what it means. That's why I went here. That's why what it means. Put our hand to the plow. There's a work ahead of us. Why? I'll tell you what. The rain's coming. Come on. The rain's coming. The rain is coming. We've been praying for the rain. Praying for the presence of the Lord. Praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Praying for revival. I thus saith the Lord, if you want me to put it that way, the rain's coming. But we've got to get the field ready to absorb it. So it doesn't just run off and say we had a good shower, but it runs off and nothing grows because of it. We got work to do. We got plowing to do. We got seed to sow. We have ground to prepare. 
It requires great concentration on our part. But the reason we embrace this is simple. The rain is coming. In fact, it's already come. Have you noticed? Already come. Now we've got to keep plowing through and get those rows right and get it ready for that seed, for the Word to grow and to blossom. The rain is coming. So when I hear the Holy Spirit say, it's time to put your hand to the plow and not look back. This is what Jesus, that's what the Scripture means Jesus is referring to. So I'm just expounding on a prophetic word that we heard and what it actually requires. But I like the call. I'll tell you why I like it. I'm just repeating myself. Because that means the rain is coming. The rain is coming. Let's keep our eyes on the Lord. Let's pray.